Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. <coughs> Hi, it's Sunday evening. Uh, I'm going to try to do the bio today. It's an interesting choice I have. Today's um, podcast is being sponsored by Moshe Lieberman from New Jersey. Uh, he's kind enough to uh, contact me and so forth. He wants to do his honor of Abu Avigdor, the mayor of Newburger, one of the members of our uh, Zaini Musketeer uh, Chabrusa Thursday night uh, group. Um... So we thank them. I assume that they know each other in France. And now, uh, and I appreciate all the sponsors. We're a little bit sure we're looking for people to step forward. Um, hope everybody had a good Purim. And now let me proceed. Uh, I want to talk about the Akeda today, the Akeda Siyasak. And the, even though it's out of order, but it doesn't matter. Uh, as it happens this past week, Especially the last couple of days, I have a lot of trouble walking and I have foot problems. In fact, I had to be wheeled to Shul. It's a real bummer. And Shabbos morning, I couldn't go to Shul. I had the wrong shoes and this, that, and the other. I need, like, a very good foot doctor. Now, um, if there are any. Anyhow, so I found myself stuck at home unexpectedly. This is Shushan Purim. And I finished diving pretty quickly because that's what you do when you're done by yourself. And a couple of hours. And so I sat down and was doing this, that, and the other. And don't ask me why, but um, I started thinking I started thinking about the Akeda. I mean, I know why, because it's something I saw there last week. And I pulled out uh, a book I haven't looked at in 100 years, um, all about the Akeda Sitsa, and an article, and a very long article. And the long and the short of it is, Maybe decide to do so, even though the arcade is like a gunta velt. You plunge into, it. Um, and it's interesting contemporary relevance because we now are living through what may be possibly an arcade renaissance. <clears throat> so let me explain what I mean by all those enigmatic phrases. Our hero today, the case is Ryutik Arama, was a guy who lived in Spain in the 15th century. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but listen closely. I think you know, most people, that the Jews were kicked out of Spain in 1492. But, already in 1391, already 100 years earlier than that, they had these huge wave of pogroms in which half the the Jewish population was forcibly converted. I've spoken about this many times. Especially, I know we did the Rivash and people like that. This is what you called Xeris of El Kanal, Kufnun Alf, which means... That there were Jews living in Spain. Now, Spain wasn't one country. There were several different kingdoms. For our purposes, the three big kingdoms that occupy the Iberian Peninsula were Castile, Aragon, and Portugal. Portugal is still there. Castile and Aragon formed to, 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 to make a country called Spain, even though Aragon still to this day doesn't like that. So, there was, and by the time you get to the 1200s, so the Muslims have been kicked out of 95% of Spain. There was a time when it was the other way around. There was a time when the Muslims, having invaded Spain in the 700s, 
ruled almost everything, 95 or even more percent of the country, except a little tip at the upper, what shall I say, the northwestern part, the upper left-hand corner, if you pull out a map or Google it, of Spain. But without cosming over what I've said many times, the Christians made a, a, a counterattack, and it took them 800 years. And they finally succeeded in driving the Muslims completely and totally out of uh, Spain. And that was Granada. But in the time I'm talking about, um, the two main Christian kingdoms, which are large and powerful, were at Castile, which was central Spain, Castile. That's where the Rush lived, for example. And the capital was Toledo. And then Aragon, where the capital was Barcelona. So, for example, the Ramban lived in Barcelona. The Rivash, the Rajba, I did the other day, the Rajba. The Rajba lived in Barcelona, in um, in the kingdom of Aragon. The Spanish is a little bit different. The culture is a little bit different, but it's a kind of Spanish. Okay. Now, the Jews, relatively speaking, had it good for a while, as is always the case in Gaulas. Then things started to turn around. Again, without going through a whole, you know, lecture on this, who's got the time, in 1391, kind of unexpectedly, without the government precipitating it, on Easter, a gigantic bunch of riots broke out, in which they rushed out of church and attacked the Jews, and they said, listen, either, you know, you, in Makab Matem Mutab, Vimlav Shamte You'll become Christians now. You've been in Spain hundreds of years. Make up your mind. If you want to stay, uh, you have to convert to Christian. And since it was a mob scene and riots, so they didn't even say, you know, if you want to leave the country, you can leave the country. They said, here we are now. We'll kill you if you don't convert. So for one reason or another, this spread all over the country spontaneously. I would say 90% of the Jewish communities. Little by little, from town to town, all throughout Castile, and all throughout Aragon and elsewhere. And by the time the process was over, half the Jews of the country converted under force. Many were killed. Many did not want to convert, and they were killed. But a belt of people converted. The government, for various reasons, was like out to lunch. And so for almost 30 years, from 1391, let's say 1421, this uh, situation of breakdown of law and order and massacring of Jews and forcing conversion, etc., etc., etc. And this whole bad situation, situation continued. And then after 30 years, turn around again, back to law and order. Okay? Again, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but turn about law, law and order. And from then on, from 1421, it went back to the, you can't attack a Jew and get away with it. But by that time, the damage had been done. Um, and so you had a weirdo situation in which throughout the country, first of all, there are many cities where the Jewish community was wiped out. By that I mean many. By that I mean there used to be a Jewish community there, sometimes a big one. By the time you finished with these riots and all this other junk, either the people were converted or they were killed or they fled or something like that. Okay? So by the time our hero, the Arvisa Garama, was Taka born in the last year of the riots, 1420. So he was, if I can use the term, fortunate. Uh, meaning that he, by the time he was one year old, the trouble was over. When the trouble was over, so a screwball situation arose. 
the new kings that took over were law and order types. And they said like this, whoever was converted is converted. They can't go back to being Jewish. But whoever was not converted now will be guaranteed nobody can hurt them. They go back to square one. So 50% uh, of the Jews were Christians already. They didn't want to be, but they were. And the other 50% happened to be lucky enough that it didn't happen to them. I always use the marshal. Imagine if you're in town and uh, and you and your brother are walking on two parallel streets. You know, in Baltimore, you'd say uh, Greenspring and Park Heights or something like that. Or Park Heights and Town. But you can do the same thing, you know, in New York. The 13th Avenue and 14th Avenue. That's a, easier for you to understand. Imagine that a Christian mob happened to run down 13th Avenue going berserk on Wednesday you know, before Purim. They make where it happened to be. And let's say Shlomi was walking down 13th Avenue. But his brother Shmerel was walking on 14th Avenue. They were both walking at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Baby, by the time this is over, Shlomi is going to be a Christian and Beryl's not. Not because any religious awakening or conversion or inner conviction took place. One had the bad muscle to be on 13th Avenue at 2 o'clock. And one had the good muzzle <clears throat> to be elsewhere to a club. This is a crazy situation that was in Spain. Now, our hero lived Mamish in the 1400s. All through the 1400s. He lived his whole life in Spain in the immediate aftermath of uh, the period I just described. And uh, his life is a very interesting reflection of this. And uh, what happened was that the Jews who were lucky and hadn't forcibly been converted, now were able to sort of come out of the, the closet, as it were. And like I said before, the king and the government said, even the church, whoever converted, converted, but now you guys are okay. It won't bother you. I mean, to make them pay taxes and stuff like that, but it won't bother And the Jewish communities got together to do the best they could to uh, recover from the Holocaust. The best they could. I remember they issued the Takanus of Valladolid. Valladolid was a capital city for a while. Then the king of Castile. And there was this rich Jew who was in favor with the king because he was his money man. And he was given permission by the, by the king to organize the Jewish communities and try to rebuild after the Holocaust. And so they set up what we would call today Avada Kehillas. All the communities in Spain came under one zah. And I remember that they said that we're going to put Iker money into Chinuch which was, of course, the only smart thing to do. That way we will rebuild a generation of kids who are not only Jewish, but know what Judaism means. And as a result of this allocation of resources, indeed, the 15th century, which means the 1400s, saw a remarkable revival of Torah scholarship in Spain, in Castile and Aragon, which is why when the Sfarnam were kicked out in 1492, and our hero is going to be one of the people leaving 1492. He was obviously 72 years old. He was born in 1420, and he made it 1492. You know, he's uh, 72. Our hero will be one of the people that leaves Spain, and others like him were serious. That's why the Sephardim will take over and terrorize and conquer all the other communities in the Mediterranean. They'll say, look, step aside, guys. We're the Sephardim. We, we can wipe the floor of you in learning, which was true. And therefore, we're taking over throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean, places like that. That's the context. 
Now, in the case of our hero, Mavitsik Aroma, what's interesting to me is he lived all of his life except the last two years in the middle of the peninsula. Usually the Jews are in port cities, you know, uh, Cordoba, uh, Valencia, you know, Granada's not too far away from the water, Malaga, Barcelona, Girona, those type of cities. But I just told you, most of the cities were exterminated. Our hero was born in Zamora. I bet you don't know where it is. Why would you? That's in the part of Spain, which is near the northern border of Portugal. Again, not that you have to be a bucket of geography, but a little bit of how you have. You know, so Portugal is on the left-hand side of the peninsula. Zamora is not far. It's in the middle of Spain, Spain, Spain. In fact, it's just, I don't know why they weren't hit by the pogroms in 1391 and afterwards. Super Catholic area. But you had Jewish communities there, and it had old Jewish communities there. In the middle of all this super Catholic stuff that they're marching around with crosses all day long, and they have parades, and Corpus Christi, and Christmas is something, and Easter is really something, and Saint this day and Saint that day. Um, preachers, friars, very Catholic. You know, it's not like America, which is a Protestant country. You 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 wear the you don't wear the religion on the sleeve. In Catholic countries, Catholic countries, you do wear the religion on the sleeve. Like in Orthodox Judaism, you do wear the religion on the sleeve. In the teeth of all this, they had these Jewish communities. Some of them uh, tried to be stark in Yiddishkeit. And especially, as we all know, the only way, particularly in times of trouble, is if you develop some kind of yeshiva system. There's no other way. And a number of yeshivas arose, some more successful and some less. Um, I'm not going to say that all the Jews who survived in the 15th century were from, that's not the case. And plenty of them were into Gilarai, Shrikh Adam, I mean, that, 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 that's what it was. In Spain, as we'll see, the biggest problem was, well, oh, we'll talk about it, if I remember. And so here we have somebody, Yitzhak Aroma, who was lucky enough to be born in the right place and the right time. The right time, by the time the pogroms were over. And in the city, the community wouldn't have been large. They had a yeshiva, they had a tradition of Torah learning. Now, they also had plenty of balabatim in the Jewish community who were bums, near the wells, they, didn't, they were not really shomer mitzvahs. They ran around with prostitutes, the whole nine yards. A typical Sephardi thing in Spain. You did. But you also had a firm element. And he obviously came from the firm element. And grew up in that. And when I use the word yeshiva, don't imagine near Israel or Torah selling in hundreds of guys. Imagine in Spain, in yeshiva, 20 guys, 30 guys. That's what you have to have in mind. That's what you have to have in mind. And so our hero grows up in the 1420s, 1430s, learning in local yeshiva. He, it's the 15th century, so in Spain that means he also had some kind of a secular education. Uh, as we'll see, the Akedis Yitzhak was a bucky in Aristotle, among other things. I mean, also Albertus Magnus and Alexander of Ephesus. In his writings, he not infrequently quotes from the Greek philosophers, which led some people to think he wasn't from as a total mistake. Uh, and they had education. Now, interestingly, he has a very fascinating introduction to his book. Interestingly, he wanted to become a Rosh Hashiva, like all these guys. You know what I'm saying? He was good in learning. They gave Shiurim. And his desire was to get a job as a rabbi somewhere, in the old, old-fashioned way. 
that the community where you're rabbi will also be able to support yeshiva. Uh, that costs money. <clears throat> Supplying the kids with three meals a day, or say one meal a day, also costs money. Well, he was hoping. Now, I, by him, the dates are not clear, but I would estimate that when he's 25, or late 20s, he left Zamora, the guy Stella. So he knows he must have got smicha in his hometown. Although Sfarnam didn't get smicha the way we do. By reputation. He went to uh, Tarragona, which is again inside the middle of uh, Spain. Except that our hero was born in western Spain, in Castile. And now he moved across the border to the kingdom of Aragon, where they talk a little bit different all the rest of it. But the Jews are the Jews. And... Um, he became a rub there. They accept him as rabbi. He was hoping that they would all support the yeshiva. I don't think they knew what they're getting into. They said, okay. But once the bills start coming in, you know, like I say, even if you don't give three meals a day, if you get one meal a day, depending on how cheap you are, you know, the money can, can, can run out. No, that's not fair what I said. He says, listen, one of the big problems, they were nice people, but the Christians made so many taxes it was a mess. Uh, it was hard to keep your heads up economically. They said he simply didn't have the money in that community, which must have not been too large, to support a yeshiva. I repeat, when I say yeshiva, I mean 10 guys, 15 guys, something like that. They couldn't even afford that. You see, all through the 15th century, it is true that you had two sets of Jews around. And throughout the entire life of our hero, he lived in this screwball situation. Spain, after 1420, until 1492, that's the 15th century, wherever you went, you saw people who were Jews, who are now Christians. You saw Jews, who are now Jews. They're always related. Like I said before, in Shemer and Beryl, the guy on 13th Street is a brother of the guy on the other street. So even though we're talking decades later, so it's his kids, his kids, everybody had cousins. So just like today, certainly in America and really elsewhere, everybody's not from relatives. If you have non from relatives, then you're a liar if you say you don't. Everybody's not from relatives. Sometimes they have many, sometimes fewer. Here, it wasn't non from, you had Christians. Now, it's not their fault. I said before, it's Oynes, right? It's not their fault. It's a Jewish tragedy. That's what it's called 15th century. <laughs> but you know you are. So if I live, I'm just making this up. If I live in Tarragona, that my name was Franco, I know there's some other Francos out there that go to church and things like that. It's all my second cousins or third cousins. Because unfortunately, their ancestor was on 13th Avenue and attacked by the Christians and converted against his will, but it happened. So we all look alike, you know? And we see each other, and we're not talking about New York City over here. The towns are much smaller. So you're going to bump into each other and all the rest of it. And indeed... The the non the, the Christian part, the conversos as they call them, some call Morano, the conversos, they had identity crisis. Like, are they Jewish? Are they Christian? You know, they run into me all all the time. They see me. I'm a Jew. I'm a from Jew. They know we're related. They're not like a regular Christian guy, Spaniard, who has no shaykhs to Jewish things whatsoever. They all knew that they're what they call new Christians, which means they used to be Jewish. Now, how do the Jews relate to them? It's very complex. And 
It also depends. Sometimes you might find... Again, I'm going to make this up. Suppose I was living in Tarragon. My name is Franco. I'd have a cousin who's now a, a Catholic. But he's a nice guy. And he said, listen, because I'm a Catholic, but that's because my family got screwed over by the Christians in, in 1391. So if I can do a favor for the Jewish community, I'll do a favor. Alternatively, you could have a case where the guy wants to be more Catholic than the Pope, and now he'll be an anti-Semite. That'll be Malshin. Do all kind of bad things. It depends, you know, on the situation. All of his life, our hero lived under these circumstances. Okay? Uh, it's also true that uh, the late 1300s and the 1400s saw a, a great intensification of Catholic missionary efforts to the Jews, and I'm not talking about the violent type. The riots of 1391 are by themselves. That's a separate category. Totally chutz from that. If you went, to, I'll use a modern example. If you went to a Barnes and Noble in Spain in the 15th century, half the books in the Barnes and Noble would be missionary things to Jews. You get it? The type of thing you don't even have in Barnes and Noble. There, the Iker subject would be books and articles and tracts and things like this written by Jews to convert Jews. Because this is notorious Kufa in which Many Jews, including Big Rabbanim, converted to Christianity. That's right, including Big Rabbanim, converted to Christianity. And they, Abner Burgos and people like that, they um, undertook to, um, try, now that they've seen the light, to try to convert the other Jews. And they would write all kind of stuff there. You know what I'm saying? They would write all kind of things. Uh, I'll prove to you. Since the guy knew how to learn, he used to be a rogue. Can quote from the Gemara, can quote from the Medrash. And they're not dumb, so you could put together something that might be persuasive. As the 1500s progressed, little by little, uh, little by little, it was harder to um, avoid getting direct pressure from the missionaries. And listen, they they kept jacking it up, you know, uh, r raising the uh, the pressure until in 1492 they kicked them out. I mean, that's the way it goes. So if you're our hero, and you're the Al-Qaeda, and you're living in Spain, in the heart of Spain, in Castile and Aragon, in the interior of the country, in Jewish communities, which are tiny little islands in a gigantically Catholic sea, when I say Catholic, I mean super-duper-booper Catholic, super-Catholic, and who are very well aware that the small Jewish communities among them, and the goal for everybody, and they mean it Lituelis, is to convert all the Jews. Not by force. We're not going to do 1391 again. No, we're not doing that, that route. But we all do, are doing sermons. You can drive through the streets. It's a little bit like, you know, in Israel when there's a funeral, the guy drives through with a loudspeaker. So, of course, they didn't have that technology. But they did have Christians going through the neighborhoods with loudspeakers and, and just making speeches against Judaism and to prove the truths of Christianity. As a matter of fact, it's not against Judaism. Rabosai, the true Judaism, is Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. Okay? Now, uh, the first stella that he had in Aragon, uh, he wanted to come in and run a yeshiva. And they said, okay. But within a short time, it, it turned out that because of the heavy taxes and general, you know, not great economic situation, they possibly couldn't, couldn't afford it. 
So this was a big disappointment. Because you can just imagine, today, you find this a lot, not in the Rabbonus, but you find a ton of guys in all the yeshivas, everybody's dreaming of being his own yeshiva. Is that true? Everybody wants to be a Rosh Kolel. Everybody wants to go out and start a yeshiva somewhere. Talking the way I'm saying, with 10 guys, 20 guys, you start up, and each one dreams one day to be near yeshiva, be near Israel, Philly, you know, with 500 guys. That's what they dream of. Nothing wrong with that. But they'll go. This state and that state and this place and that place. So, in in the case of our hero, he wanted to be a Rav and also be Rosh Hashiva. But it was pretty clear that ain't happening. On the other hand, it's Parnassus now over here. And so the community said, like, listen, we can't afford it. We can't afford to pay you, to pay you, 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 yourself, an adequate salary that we can afford. We like you. Stay here. And just be the Rav. And so that's what he did. He kind of had no choice. And so, imagine somebody in the 1450s, I guess the late 40s, 50s, 60s, something like that, in administering to these uh, Kehillahs, these towns, these rebel Kehillah. So what do you do? Obviously, you're there for davening, of course. You give Shurim for Balabatim, you'd say. You know, uh, it becomes a, a, a pastoral kind of a role, more than a Rosh Hashiva type role. I don't believe... He had Balabatim he could learn Gemara with. I wasn't there. Maybe he did, but it seems what he writes not. Okay? Now, listen closely. Because of all this ser- Catholic sermonizing junk that was going all this missionary business, so uh, it may even be, we're not clear, that in some places they, they compelled the Jews to go to church and listen to sermons against Judaism. But even if they, that happened in Italy, but even if they didn't, the Catholic Church was good enough to get good speakers. They would go stand near Jewish neighborhoods and things like that. And listen, if a guy's a good speaker, a guy's a good speaker. You know what I'm saying? And so basically the Balabat are being bombarded with anti-Jewish Judaism messages. And he saw that, forget the role of Rashi because that's not in the cards, he's going to have a full, his hands full just trying to hold the fort for Judaism to persuade his own Balabatim, who are good people, to stay Jewish and and show the beauty of Judaism, which means the way we read the Old Testament, not the way they do. Because the whole Catholic business, they're saying that their reading of the Bible, of the Torah, especially but the whole Torah is the correct one. And we kind it's not. But he's kind of Balaban. They didn't understand all that kind of stuff. Moreover, and he says this, he would like to learn with them, uh, shall we say, an anti-missionary book or one of these pro Jew There weren't any. Um, the Jewish commentators on the Torah have their own characteristics. They don't present anything in a thematic and large way. It's usually pussy by pussy. For reading Chumash and Rashi, you ain't necessarily going to come from. Let's put what I mean by that is the done to dress the tinies the Catholics have on what happens in Brace Shemos, Vakram, Yeshua Shoftim, and all the rest of it. It's not written that way. Same thing with the Rabban, the Ibn Ezra. They write meanings of Sukkim, connections with Tershal you know, certain shot issues. There's not a large thematic kind of business. And so the long and the short of it is, 
this guy who wasn't planning to become the pulpit rabbi, that public speaker, turned himself into one. You know, by necessity. He's got to compete with the guy. You know what I'm saying? They're a block away. They're good. So you better be good too. Because nothing's going to be as bad. You come on Shabbos to give a speech, and people roll their eyes and say like this, our own rabbi thinks the Galak is good, the rabbi isn't. That stern necessity, compelled to learn the tricks of the trade, and become a good talker. And now he spent year after year, you know how it goes, uh, you go through the cycle of the parshas, the, the Torah readings. What I can say is that in those communities where he was, the, the main time of the week you learn is by the rabbi's speech on Shabbos. There's not necessarily wrong with that. I mean, it's unfortunate that he didn't have shiurim and things like that. But nevertheless, the, the, the pulpit moment of the rabbi uh, can be, if it's properly used, a powerful tool. And so this is what he worked on. Okay? Now think about it. This week I'm talking on his Parshish Kisiso. For example, the Golden Calf. You do this Parsha this year, and then you do it next year, and then you're constantly returning back to Eglazo. Every year it's Parsha Kisiso. So what I mean is as time goes on, you try out your ideas. You know, this year you give this approach, that approach. And you know, if you've ever been in this business, you see... Some ideas sound better to you, some ideas less, some ideas fly, some not. You say over one shot and the ball of bottom love it, you say another shot and it just uh, goes over the heads. So by trial and error, you learn, you perfect yourself in the art of giving speeches on the Parshas of Shiva. That's what he did. Now, as I said, as time went by, he found you know, certain vorts that he liked, certain mahalachs. Um, he read up on what's necessary to know this. So the Balakato, listen, if he was Rosh Hashim material, and later on we'll see, he did become Rosh Hashiva. So now let's put it this way. Shots and post communion. I don't know how much, but assuming they live in 15th century, I'd say pretty good. So here's a guy named Shas. But listen closely. If you want to be a successful pulpit rabbi in the speaking area. <laughs> Knowing Gemaras like Baba Kama don't help. Right? You need a different type of expertise, that of what we call the Megidas. And so, there are different approaches. One is, simply to, to become an expert in what I would call Medrash and Enyako. The Enyako was composed a little bit later, right after him, in the early 1500s. But you know what I mean. The Agatha and Shas. Right? And the Medish Rabbah, Medish Tachum, and so forth. So in other words, the Chazal level. You know that stuff, you know the stories, the Mashals, you know, the Diukim, the Varts. And any, you know, decent speaker, you can always try to take it from me. Not that I'm a decent speaker, but I have a lot of experience in this. You, if you can't find something in the Medish Rabbah to work with, you're in big trouble. <laughs> you know, there's always something there. Always something there. But that's one kind of thing. If you want to be... But but let me say this. I don't do this anymore. Quote Medish Why? I've been in the rabbi business for a couple of decades. I used to. I can't repeat the same thing over and over again. And so if you... Keep, you hear what I'm saying? I'm trying to take you into the real world as I understand it. All I can ever share with you is my interpretation. 
my understanding of what happened to this person. If you're here, you're by here. You can't just, you know, save another medish. I mean, I guess you can. You keep switching around in the medish. But it's clear he wanted to be on that. Okay? And so another area of approaching this is to use, shall I call it um, Hashkafic literature? No, let's call it for, let's call it spade a spade. The medieval philosophical literature. Okay? There's a whole separate area in which if you master this literature, again, it'll provide you with a whole different uh, treasury of ideas. Uh, what are we talking about? Saji Gons and Murus Vadeus, the Chobos Alvobos, the Kuzri, although he never quotes the Kuzri. Very much the Mornevukim, um, the Ralbog, you know, the left winger, so to speak, uh, the Sefer Ikrim, who's contemporary, well, a little bit older, and that sort of business. Right? So this is a whole separate genre. And again, now you're you're moving the intelligence level up. Because if you quote a meta, depending on how you attack it, you can just see a meta over and spin it this way, spin it that way. If you're saying a reward for the Mornabuchim, you already have to explain a lot of things. You have to set it in the right context. Um, you're talking philosophical already. You know, it, 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 it's, it's a much more sophisticated sermon. Okay? Now, um, so this is what he did. And uh, incidentally, if you want to make a hit with your Balabak, this is true now, then you better know the secular literature as well. Well, he had a good education. And so, as I said before, he was able to use for his speeches, you know, the, I would say the, the, the popular Greek philosophical works that were popular in the public at that time. Most especially the Taurus Amidas, you know, the Aristotle's now comic in ethics, in which Aristotle discusses you know, the eudaimonia and uh, arete, all, all that stuff. And uh, which the Ramah, all the Rishonim were into this. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, he, like I said, Aristotle wrote the, uh, he wrote many books. The people interested in that time was the uh, his ethics and his politics. Um, because the ethics is how the Yochid should operate his life, and the politics is how a, how a Tzibor should operate his life. So these are things that are uh, full of wisdom. Um, you have to agree with all of it, but like, you know, the Rambam's whole, what do you call it, the Shemona Prokhan is from the, is from the uh, Nihakamic ethics. You know, with the, with the golden mean, with the, the Derech Hamza. It's all straight out of Aristotle. Anyhow, uh, so he, you have a rich speaker, as it were. He's got a lot of material. He can throw at you a chazal. He can throw at you a haloch if he wants to. He can throw at you an Aristotle or an Alexander Aphrodisius. He can throw at you an Ibn Sina, you know, Abaros, and, 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 and uh, the, you know, the Mepharshamon, the Arab Mepharshamon on Aristotle. I can just see, you know, that will appeal to, shall I say, the more modernish element of the congregation. On the other hand, he could also do, you know, Rashi, something like that, and that would appeal to more traditional. That's the name of the game, my friends, in those days. It's the name of the game still today. Now, he worked this year after year after year. And once he came out with words that he really liked, he started putting them for a safer. You understand? Uh, but he polished them year after year. He didn't, he didn't uh, publish them until very, very late in life. He worked and worked and worked in it. He was such a good speaker 
that eventually, as happens in the history of the rabbinate, they got a bigger cellar in Kalatayud, which is another city in, um, actually in Castillo. And um, in Kalatayud, there they would pay for yeshiva. And so the last 30 years or so of his career, approximately, he spent three decades all the way in the north of Spain, smack dab in the middle of Catholic country. I mean, I can't tell you how incongruous this is. You're surrounded by super Catholic stuff. Super duper. If you haven't ever visited Spain and seen these places in the north, you can't conceive. The churches just dominate everything. The bells, the monasteries. It's, you know, and, and back then it was ten times as much. It's unbelievable. And here's the Jewish community. <laughs> a few blocks away is a, is a street or two or three, whatever, of Jews. They have their synagogue. And the job is, once you're in the shul, to create a, a, a little mental universe that, you know, uh, what's the right word? That blocks out the outside world. So in Kaltayut, he actually had a yeshiva. Now again, I'm sure yeshiva couldn't have been more than 20 guys. I mean, I, I assume. I'm assuming. But, you know, you give a shirim every day. But by this time, he was already so hooked on being a public speaker that instead of, so his life plan changed. Instead of being a Rosh Hashiva, who gives a couple, you know, drushes on the side, who came the other way around. He's mainly a darshaner, and he gave shirim on the side, as, if I can use that expression. Because as far as I know, I don't know any famous Talmud or learners of Yeshiva, and I don't know of any Chidushim on shots, that kind of thing, or halacha from him. Although, obviously, I want you to know, he was a rob. He had a basin. He did the getting, as they say, passing the mission questions. I mean, he was a rabbi, rabbi, rabbi. But what's unusual about him is he's a very good speaker. So he wasn't the only guy in Spain that had yeshiva. Um, there were a bunch. The Yitzhak from this time. But on the other hand, he obviously had perfected the art of speaking according to the standards of the 15th century. It's not exactly the standards of America, obviously, in the 21st century. Tastes change and things like that. But nevertheless, it's there. And he spends all these decades polishing over every, like Rabbi Kalowski did with his year. Every year he comes back to the goes oh, he polishes it a little, writes it a little bit better, he changes his mind a little bit, you know, gets it in there. And he devoted himself to writing a book that he thought he hoped would take off, which he called the KDC Yitzhak for various reasons. I don't want to go into it. And uh, each one has a shar, you know, and... Uh, of course, it's on the Parsha of the Week, but it's thematic in the sense that, you know, it's, uh, yes, it is on the Parsha of the Week, but it, it, the whole thing is composed of 105 Sharim. And each one's kind of independent. And so, you know, like, for example, I'm opening up the, the table of contents. The first one is a Brashad Baal Kim, but then he has a whole separate thing as a Shemai of Arts. Then he has this whole separate thing, Vayim Al Kim Hior. And that's a particularly rich Parsha. Let's take, for example, our Pasha this week, which is, um, what do you call it? Kisiso. So, uh, he's got 51, 52, and 53, and 4. Actually, yeah, yeah, 4 and 5. So, listen what he's got. Venosno ish kofer now show. So, that's one theme. No, that's a speech he gave. Which means, one year when he came to Pasha Kisiso, that's what he concentrated on. And he polished it up over the years. 
Yivor Heyos Hamishkan, Hakabonis Ashkon, Lumus Aparnosa, Mada Bachaim, Yvor Tamas Ashekel. He'll give room for Machs Ashekel. You understand? Then he has Vayarham Kiboshish Moshe, destroy the golden calf. Yivor Sichlus of the Alili Eitz Vavin. He'll demonstrate how stupid it is to worship material objects. Then he'll explain Tegel's own story in his way. Right? Then he says, Here's the story where Moshe says, Let me see your face. They say he discusses the whole thing, in this case, from a philosophical perspective. What do you mean God's face? And, and how can God have a form whatsoever? And if he doesn't have a form, how can you relate to God? And he'll also explain, What's the story with, with the mask of Moses? And the shining of his face. You see what I'm saying. No, in each parsha, you take certain themes. Obviously, these are themes that over the years he spoke about this, spoke about that. Now I bet she spoke about more than that in parsha TC so over the many decades. But you know, these are ones he liked. The other ones, eh, these are ones in his opinion. So you get the solace Nakia, so to speak, in his opinion of all of his best uh, sermons. And he added them to him and polished them up. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because the result is that um, in his life, he wasn't able to publish them uh, when he was 72. And still, Robin, that time, he should be retired. That's when the Jews were kicked out of Spain in 1492. Obviously, he's from the Sephardim Torium, so he fled the country. He's not going to stay and become a Christian. In 1492, either you had to stay and become a Christian or leave. It wasn't like 1391 where they kill you. They had to leave. He fled to uh, Portugal and then from there to uh, Naples. They were died in Naples. Um, you know, that's the story. So he was like in his mid 70s when he died. The Safer was published by his son and took off. Took off. Um, I think that case has been published again and again and again. And because he has this system where he sort of says, like a, an aphorism, you know. You should be good to people or something like that. And then he'll say, now let's look at our partial. We have a bunch of kashas. This kasha, this problem, this problem, this problem. And they're all related to his general aphorism, which sounds like you shouldn't be good to people. And then he'll give one grand explanation to frame for all the questions. And meanwhile, he'll also throw in a matter from philosophy or from allegory or from, I don't know, you know, marshals or medrash. It's a whole wide variety of Popery's different approaches. Now, if this sounds like DeBarbanel, it's true. DeBarbanel was accused of, of cheating from him, of, of, of plagiarizing from him. You understand? Know the son of the, of what's the name? The Al-Qaeda said, you stole my father's stuff. I don't know if that's true. Because Lamaisi just said he looked at it once before he, he uh, when he was in Naples. But that style, obviously, was around and popular. And so the Al-Qaeda is like DeBarbanel. I'm just saying, for you, you the reader, you don't have to bother yourself with all these little petty things. For you, the reader, if you're familiar with the Barbanel at all, you know, you always, that's where all these different kashas, so the, the one who preceded him and invented that genre was our hero, the Akeda. The Akeda is as a safer took off. Because it is his style, as I'm describing, to use every shtick in the, out there. Sometimes he'll explain things halachically, but sometimes he'll be very maimonidean. Explain things very philosophically. You understand? Know um, very lofty ways. But other times, he explains things allegorically. He'll say this whole story of Avram and Sarah is an allegory. And listen, he's a firm guy. 
So he's not saying it didn't happen. He's saying, Shivan Parm Latoro, and although the story happened, it also serves as an allegory. You see? Um, he's very careful all the time to say it. The, he was a frummy. And he says in the beginning, and it's true, he said, I have a lot of luminicola and all this kind of stuff, but it's always subordinate to the Torah. And that's correct. You know what I'm saying? So he's like a real from guy with a very good college education who's able to use all of his, uh, what shall I say, secular knowledge in the service of the Agoda. <laughs> you know I mean? that, that's the kind of guy he was. The, as a result, there is a kind of a timeless quality to this. The uh, And and the Akeda has always, uh, or not always, but very, very often, unusual takes, original takes, no kind of matters. Uh, sometimes he's very shot-oriented. You understand what I'm saying? It's, it's interesting. Sometimes uh, he'll give things like the Rajbam or something like that. You're, you're actually surprised uh, because, you know, it, it's, it's almost like a, uh, I don't want to say the word left-wing because that's not the right word, but you know what I mean when I'm saying that. And sometimes the same things are very daring. I remember, for example, <clears throat> this is just one of these cuties. What does it mean, Yaakov Lomes? He says, well, Misa means... The soul departs and the body falls apart. In Yaakov's case, the body never fell apart because it was, you know, embalmed. Therefore, you can't say Yaakov Lamez. That's a very nice word. He ain't saying that's exactly what the Gemara means. And, you know, throughout all the, what shall I say, spiritual interpretation. But it's a good word. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He says, uh, when, the, when the two midwives, one killed the children by Aslan, bought him. He's like, is he put him under house arrest? That's it. So he shouldn't do it to, to others. That's a good for you. Know. My point is like this: it doesn't take away from the other shots, but it's a cute word. It can, tell, you know, like someone in shul who heard that, he said, "Oh, that's interesting." He's never saying this is the shot. It's one aspect of it. Uh, my favorite. Uh, I have a couple of favorites. One of my favorites, especially from a historical point of view, is is long reaches on the story of Sodom and Amora. With Lot and everything, the city gets destroyed, and Pelagish, Pelagish Begiva. Because it's the same, same thing. The two stories are almost identical, right? You know, uh, the town came and they wanted to rape the woman, and this and that and the other. How come God destroyed Sodom? But God did not destroy Giva, the Jewish town. They acted the same way. The, and he says Ramban tries to give answers, but I don't like Ramban. He says, you know. The Ramban shots are, are not persuasive. Uh, he has a right to say it. So, um, look at this. I remember he says like this. The difference is that by Sodom, that was the law. By Giva, they were breaking the law. If something is a society, if it's officially recognized, that's like terrible. If it if it just happens, you know, by, by Yechidim, so notice then the Yachids get punished. But if the seaboard, the society itself, Comes part of the law, if they officially sanction this kind of marriage and that kind of thing, all the rest of it, oh boy, then the whole place gets literally destroyed. And then he uses that because sometimes what he does is it becomes a social uh, critic. Um, here's what historians love the Akeda. <coughs> yeah, excuse me. Uh, if it becomes officially sanctioned, then God really hates that. And then he says, this is the problem we have in Spain with uh, prostitution. The Jewish community. Now he lived in a time, I just said before, after the riots, all the rest of it. The Jewish communities were under tremendous 
pressures all around them. And they're always afraid the boy shouldn't run off with sixes or they shouldn't get involved in other situations. And so the Kehil, the Rivash writes about this. So the Jewish Kehil is basically ran whorehouses of Jewish girls and saying this is a, a, a lesser evil. And he said, you're, you're like Sedom. You see? You're not like Giva. And he puts it over here. And now he's in his community. So they had the same problem in his community. He's using the Shabbos of Ayero. We talk about Sodom. And everybody's scared to try to get him to close these places down. The Bezin doesn't do anything about them. The, the courts uh, basically give him a free pass. And sometimes the community budges for these places. He says, we don't do this, then the young people in the community, whatever the teens will run off and you know, with Gaim and, and with the married people, and so, you know, they're using that kind of logic. And I argued with them. I spoke to the leaders of the laity, of the rabbinate. A private sin that's done privately, not with the permission of the public, or with Shus Basin. Not with permission of Basin. But a private sin. Listen, everybody does a private sin. So that becomes the sin of the individual. And that's what happened Pilegs would give up. There, the tribe of Yaman, had they punished the perpetrators, so the tribe of Yom would have been wiped out. It's because they sanctioned it, right? Had they punished them, then the whole tribe of Yom would have been spared. But, on the other hand, by contrast, a sin, even if it's a chet katan, it's not like Gilarias or something like that. Even if it's a chet katan, if a chet katan has official sanction of Vader the Vada Kehillus, Vadas Nitna, the base Dinehem Shalimchasbo, if it becomes an actual policy of basins to let this go, to not protest, Inehuzima, Vavam Plili, Vachatasa Kalhukulo, that becomes a communal sin, Vlo Nitna Lamachilo, Ilava Bepronisakal, and God will not forget it, forgive it, without the community as a whole, uh, you know, being punished. So that's such a typical uh, here. He takes a, a thoughtful theme, in other words, Sodom, Lot, we all know that story, destruction of Sodom, he raised it to a bigger level by comparing it with Pelagius Megiva, very well-known story in Tanakh, in Nach. he contrasts the two, and then he uses it to bring out a Musar Haskell, no, not a Musar Haskell, to bring out something that's on the front page of the Mishpacha magazine, you know, so to speak. In other words, on a 
on a, a, a hot button issue of contemporary relevance, and he's going to call a spade a spade, even though you can tell by the way he's describing it, those with the power and the Richie Riches and the others, based on their own cashmans, that opposed his, his approach. You find this very often, that's why I say historians are very interested in the Akira, more than the public. More than the public. Now, um, this book took off. It was published in the early 1500s. And um, it became the number one cheater book uh, for hundreds of years. Um, even though it was always printed in a very lousy print, and chicken scratch, as they say, and not well, you know, edited and things like that. Everybody was a rabbi who needed speech material in Eastern Europe, in the Sephardim, all over Claudius Rome. I mean, down to recently, 100 years ago, Eastern Europe, everybody had a copy. Every rabbi who had to give speeches and wanted to be good at it had a copy, among other things, of the Akedo. Can you see it so? They can always get all kind of, you know, like I said, shot Remus Drash, so he's not into Kabbalah, but the other stuff he's into. So you get allegory, you get philosophy, you get medrash, you get this approach, that approach, you know, politics, they can do anything, excuse me, from the Akeo. The Chido himself, who was a big speaker, says in the Shema Gedolim, Bechol Sifri Hadarshanim, Bedor Shalafonenu, all the classic Drasha books, Shosei Meim of Hanhamonim, Bolshav Besodo. They all steal from him, and Bolshav Bestob. And, and they praise his... In other words, they're happy he wrote it. So it became a book not for the laity, but for the professional rabbinic, if I can use that terminology. So the guy from Yeshiva, the Esther year, in the old days, if he got it, became a shell and he got a, a job as a rabbi, they tell him, listen, you know, there's a couple of books you want to get. You want to get the uh, Zaria Figo, you want to get the Akeda, right? And because uh, there you have ready-made speeches. Never made speeches. And uh, it's on every parsha of the week. And so you will find material. Like I said before, if it's Parsha's key seesaw, you'll find something either about the, uh, the, the the spices, or you find something about, obviously, the story of the, you know, of Eglazov, uh, or you'll find something about Moshe saying, show me your face. You know, then you get philosophical. You'll find material on the Akedah. You know what I'm saying? And so the book became very popular. But as a professional book, I wouldn't say it was widely read among the public, although, you know, those that knew knew. I myself never heard of the kid when I was a kid. I once read a book, I think it was called Righteous Lives, when I was very young, by a guy named Fuchsvanger, and they had a single one, Michelle Moroth, who was a big rabbi in Israel, Koma Vassar, Mizrahi guy, a Hungarian, big gone, and he was saying, Funny, look what sticks with me decades later in the story. That we was a little kid, back in Hungary somewhere, you know, a guy saw him with a safer and said, what are you reading? He says, is that Kedis Yitzhak? That's too young for you. And the guy said, and Shulam Roth, who's a genius, said, well, I memorized the book already. And the guy said, both. And he did. And they were like shocked. I, I can hear it. It's not an easy thing to memorize. But if you get into his style of writing, it's not so hard to memorize the words. I mean, the language is hard to memorize the words. But divorce are not hard. You know what I'm saying? Divorce are not hard. And about 30 years ago, something like that, I saw one in English, a case that's in English, like a pricey of it from this Rabbi Mung. I can't. That was when I used to give 
in somebody's house on Monday nights, a Parsha shared. So I was using every. I can't say I used it a lot. I have to be honest with you. I can't say I used it a lot. Um, and over the years, you know, some I, I'm not a big Akeda person. I always had a set, but it wasn't well, you know, printed and things like that. So I, I look, I have this highlight and that highlight here and there. I must have used stuff over the years. I don't remember so much. But of course, when you're in Shul, like you say, you always have to come up with material. And for whatever reason, I have certain things from the Al-Qaeda. Um Now, recently, things have changed. Oh, yeah, there's also one other thing. This is interesting. Many, many years ago, um, I used to have this prime gigantic library called the Baltimore Hebrew College. It was this institution that they used to have, like a secular Jewish college. Nobody used the library. It was like my private library. And there they had a book called Studies in Jewish Preaching. I don't remember when I read it, decades ago. By Israel Batan. It was this literature guy who went to yeshivas and then came to America and joined the Reform. And he became professor of Darshanas, homiletics, in Cincinnati. So he knew how to learn, you know, not from there. And he used to write, among other things, about speeches, about darshaning. And he actually wrote a very good book called Studies in Jewish Preaching, in my opinion. That he had Azariah Figo and uh, Jonas Amschitz and uh, Yaakov Anatoly, and he had a long thing. This is really when I first discovered anything about the Akeda, when I read his essay. He goes into great detail about his style, all in English. That's the old fashioned, terse English from the Reform from 100 years ago that he's trying to impress. But everybody's, it's, it's well written. And if you want an English, you know, praise of the whole thing. Did a good job with many details, with many examples. You know, you'll get that book, Studies in Jewish Preaching. Uh, I don't know if I use it today, but this point was this is how they used to do it in the old days. Um, so he really went through it. He plowed through it. Now, recently, now I'm going to tell you something funny. Here, let me switch this for a second. I have to switch this. Okay, now I resumed it. Uh, what was they saying? The recently interesting developments about the Al-Qaeda. Uh, I mean, historians like it for their own reasons. A lot of what he says connected Christianity in a subtle way, but you'd have to know what the Christians were writing at that time. It would totally pass by the average reader today. Uh, he wrote very with a very fine sense. Now, let me tell you something. Recently, what led me to talk about this today? So last week, how should I organize my thoughts? Uh, two things. First of all, recently, the Oswald Hunter came out for the first time ever with a wonderful edition, six or seven volumes of the Katie Shitsuk. I cannot praise it highly enough. They put time and effort into it. They put in a block print and, you know, paragraphs and, and they have those little things on the side, you know, summaries. It's really fantastic. Okay? So as far as I'm concerned, for you, the listener, the book is now opened up in a way that it's never been before. That's interesting. That's just interesting. In addition to that, so I mean, I don't know if the average guy goes to a swarm store and sees Akeda Celtic. He probably doesn't know what it is. He probably thinks it's a, it's a very, very long essay on the binding of Isaac by Abraham, you know, in, in Parshas Lechah. Uh, 
than Vayera or whatever. But it's not. It's a commentary on the whole Chumash in, in this multifaceted way. Hold on for a second. Also, at the same time, I heard uh, my friend, uh, this farm chatter, he interviewed Rabbi Lebiansky. Now, Lebiansky said that he put out this thing, like a two-volume cheater book, on the main vort on each parsha of the classics. You know, the, the Ramban you should know from this parsha, the of Achaya, something like that. And he also included the Akedah. Uh, and I went and bought the book. And I forget, it's, uh, I have it here somewhere. I'm holding it for a minute. Um, it's called Yisiria Torah. So I'm plugging his book. And in there, he offers for the first time, for the average yeshiva guy out there, can I use that expression? Uh, if you want to know, is, is there an important Akeda on the Parsha? He gives you the Keta in, in, in regular nice print and all the rest of it. And I think this is going to have the effect of making people aware there's this guy called the Akeda out there, not just somebody you heard of. And I want to tell you something. I myself, because of this, I went and uh, looked inside because uh, I had time on Shabbos and um, on Titzavda and there's this wonderful little piece here I don't remember seeing it before where, which he raises the question uh, what's the meaning of understanding the reasons behind the mitzvahs okay hear how I put it the grandeur and the godless of knowing the Tamea mitzvahs now there are those who say that that's dangerous and there was huge battles about that in Spain. That's those who say, I know the Tama Mitzvah. But if you know a Tama Mitzvah, then it greatly enhances it. And the Akedah is one of the guys who's in favor of Tama Mitzvahs, again, from a very front point of view. Okay? And he quotes the Rambam, uh, one of the more controversial Rambams, in chapter 51, in um, the end of the Mernabuchim, the way the Rambam gives his famous marshal that... Uh, you know, there's a king inside of a palace, inside of a castle, and people are trying to find it, but the, uh, yeah, people are total atheists, they don't even know the castle exists. Then there are the Christians and the Muslims who lose backer to the castle, and therefore every step forward, they step take forward, they're actually moving away. Then there's this Tom from the Yeshiva guys, who just learned, but never, have no idea what Yish guys is like, just the Sugas of the Gemara. And they are people who just wander around, they'll never find the door. And then finally, there is those who get in and find the door. And then those who get get in, you know, the philosophers, like Maimonides, you know, they actually get in and see the king. Okay? And um, he discusses. That's the way the Ramam puts it. In a very, uh, what's the right word? Aristocratic and put-down way. Right? Okay? Now, um, on the other hand, our hero is, is giving a speech to a shul. Tequila, he's not going to do that. And so, how, how does he say it? He says like this. He named Bezos HaMadrego The Madrego in which you have Limba Nechachma, the mitzvahs, is Yachter Eichin Mechachamim. That's something for this, the few. On my Bornbaum, the regular people out there, the regular Jew out there, the unlearned Jew who just goes around and performs the mitzvahs, but has no real idea why he or she is doing it. Mishalelus mishum kavonis mena kavonis. 
that they don't have any idea the kavanas behind the mitzvahs. There are people that it says mitzvahs in Hashem Lumara. Right? Baleim Kosov Amar Nebuchem, Shahamon Ami Aritz Oskem B'Mitzvahs, Rotsin Lavol Amelchli Konsetzlo, that these are the type of people who want to get into the palace, but they have no idea where it is. Okay? And he goes on to say, you know, to knock them and all the rest of it. Right? But wait a minute. I'm sure they're shooting. If he's in 1470, he's giving this speech and call it to you. Right? So uh, not everybody in the show is a big intellectual. I mentioned most of them aren't. And so he says, this is the knech of the Akedah. But you have to admit, suppose a guy is not a big intellectual. Like we say, a good to yid. Or a woman, women didn't have education in the past. Your bubby's bubby. And yet, they were from very good people. So, you can't deny, that maybe a person doesn't understand high philosophical business about the mitzvahs that he or she performs. If a person says, I have no idea why I'm keeping Shabbos or not, or wearing sitzes, but I know the Rabbi Shalom wants me to do it. That's the reason I'm doing it. I know the Rabbi Shalom wants me to do it. So, that Kate will say, I cannot agree with the Marnabuchim over here. But a person like that who keeps the mitzvahs and does so because Rabbi wants him to do it, he gets to see the king. Like a Hasidic approach. They're good Jews. They get into the, to the building. They get into the throne room. They get to see the melech. They get to see the king sitting on the throne who is the one who gave them the orders to carry out the mitzvahs that they do. Im right? But they see the king wearing a mask. It's a beautiful way of putting it. They again see the king, they see the king, they see the king as a mitzvah, as a lawgiver, but they don't see the face of the king. And what he's trying to say is like this, only the philosophers, I mean that in the firm sense, only to understand the Tamiya mitzvahs, the reason behind the mitzvahs, uh, the Kabbalim would say the Kabbalistic reason behind the mitzvahs, the Hasidim would say the, you know, the Labavitch reason behind the mitzvahs, whatever. They're the ones who see the face of the Melech. That's an example of their kid taking something from Maimonides, but giving it his spin, and what he says is, listen, the good Jew gets into the palace, but he doesn't see the full business of the face of the king. You understand? But it's pretty good to get in the palace and be in the presence of the king too. That's a pretty good Madrid as well. So, uh, between these things, they now have in the Lepiansky book a whole whole uh, uh, snatches of the Akeda, organized Parsha by Parsha. And now you have, really, it's revolutionary, this new set from the Oswalder. I took the trouble today to read the intro by the guy who published it now. <laughs> but it turned out to be like some kind of self-confession, this is my life kind of thing, more about the guy who did it than, than about the uh, Akeda. Uh, but nevertheless, they did a very nice job. Um, you, if you if you get into it, you'll see a system with the psicha and the drisha. You know, he he raises the the, the basic idea, and then he asks questions to him, and then he gives the answers to it. He has a system. You get used to it, or you don't. 
you know, and uh, those who are, who are willing to do so, it's like reading the Barbanel. Those who are willing to plunge into it, uh, it's long. Right? If you're willing to plunge into it and work your way through, you will get good stuff. Uh, I don't say you use every stuff. There's a lot of stuff in there that I never got turned on to. But there's a lot of stuff that I do get turned on to. You see? That's the way it usually goes. Perhaps, if anybody's interested in what I'm talking about today, perhaps a good idea is to make a chavrusa. You know, like on Shabbos, something like that. You do one uh, shar of the Akeda um, per week. You pick up a lot of ideas and a lot of very interesting ideas. These are part of the heritage of Kali Throw. All the big rabbis starting with the Kliyakar and the Shlaw. Abish should say all, you know, they all uh, quote and use the the Akeda. And so he hit his home run. Again, it's interesting because his if life were to turn out the way he planned it, he would be a Rosh Hashiva. And, you know, maybe he would have a safer on Shas or some Gemara or something like that. Life didn't turn out the way he, he planned it. I don't know if life turned out for anybody in, in 15th century Spain the way they planned it. It was tough enough just holding the fort. Uh, and he turned out and said to present a book, which is in the form of a commentary in the Parsha week, but really deals with what we call religious philosophy. That's really what it is. Religious philosophy. We're not used to that in the film world so much. Uh, but that case is like a classic of that. He knew Stam philosophy. You understand? He did know secular philosophy. But that's not what interests him. What interests him is the religious philosophy. Because as he just said before, he was interested in getting in to see the king and see the face of the king without the king wearing a mask. So with that, I bid you a good week. And once again, we thank our sponsors. And that's it. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.